This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome back our returning celebrity guest scorer, host of the Best Picture cast, Kieran B. Gentlemen, how we doing? We are wonderful. How are things over on the BPC? BPC's going going great. We've had a bunch of bunch of new releases this fall. It's been uh, all about editing them and getting them out. I'm sure you know that that life well. But we've had some good stuff. We did uh, All About Eve. We did The French Connection. And we have uh, the the much maligned Cimarron coming up next. So, Ooh, yeah, that's that's like <laughs> in my bottom five. So I <sighs> I didn't even like the remake with Glenn Ford. So, yeah, I definitely didn't didn't like the remake. because I accidentally watched that thinking I was watching the best picture winner. So it really took me down the, the Cimarron spiral. Not great, Cotton. Yeah, the original. There's one word, overacted. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Probably a couple other words you could stick in there, too, but that one definitely applies. Overlong? Yeah, so we had, uh, we're we're recording that one next week. That should be an interesting affair. We just got done with the whole horror fest and, and all that, and it was The Thing that won that. John Carpenter's The Thing, so we had fun recording that and getting that episode out. So some elements of that apply to what we're talking about today. Yes, yeah, a film I've just recently seen for the first time, and uh, I audibly said multiple times, what the fuck, during that movie. <laughs> but I had to watch it for my movie discussion group. Somebody picked that particular uh, film. Uh, John Carpenter happened to be his uh, favorite director, and he was actually on the show two weeks ago. So good friend of uh, mine, and hopefully he'll be back. But yes. With uh, French Connection and All About Eve, two films that I would imagine will be on in season six, because those will be coming up on both of those anniversaries, I believe, unless, was French Connection 71 or 70? 71. Okay, so if it's 71, it'll probably be two or three years from now, as opposed to uh, the other one. But I am excited for the All About Eve debate, because we already had uh, Sunset Boulevard on. Which is an easy transition for tonight's film, another Billy Wilder film. We have Stalag 17 from 1953. The uh, prison camp, I would say comedy. I mean, it's a a loose comedy, dramedy kind of situation. I'm not sure what category to exactly place it in, but 70 years old this year. Written and directed, like I said, by Billy Wilder. Co-written with Edwin Blum. Music by Franz Waxman. I hope I'm not mispronouncing that one by uh, not putting like the German sounding accent on it, but starring William Holden as J.J. Sefton, Don Taylor as Lieutenant James Dunbar, Otto Preminger as Colonel von Scherbach, Robert Strauss as Stanislaus Animal Kuzawa, Harvey Lembeck as Harry Shapiro, Richard Erdman as Hoffy Hoffman, Peter Graves as Frank Price or Security, Neville Brand as Duke, Michael Moore as Man Freddy, Sig Ruman as Sergeant Johann Sebastian Schultz, Peter Baldwin as Johnson, Robinson Stone as Joey, 
Robert Shawley as Blondie Peterson, William Pearson as Marco the Mailman, and Gil Stratton as Clarence Harvey Cookie Cook, our narrator. Recognition for this movie? Stalag 17 was originally released in the United States on June 6, 1953. The film is based on the play of the same name from 1951, but was heavily rewritten for the film. On a budget of nearly $1.7 million, Stalag 17 would go on to gross roughly $10 million across the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. However, its domestic box office run placed it outside of the top 10 for the year. Though Charlton Heston and Kirk Douglas were considered for the lead role, the part of Sefton eventually fell to William Holden, who beat out Burt Lancaster and Montgomery Clift, to win his only Oscar for Best Actor. His acceptance speech is one of the shortest on record. It was, quote, thank you, thank you. The TV broadcast had a strict cutoff time, which forced Holden's quick remarks. The frustrated Holden personally paid for advertisements in the Hollywood trade publications to thank everyone he wanted to on Oscar night. He also remarked that he felt that either Lancaster or Clift should have won the Best Actor Oscar for their roles from here to eternity instead of him. He is said to have felt he was given the award as consolation for not having previously won it for Sunset Boulevard. Full circle now. The film would also garner nominations for Best Director for Wilder and Supporting Actor for Strauss. Stalag 17 currently holds a 91% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an 84 score on Metacritic, and a 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So as we start every week, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? This is a movie that my dad loved when it was released, and he always told me about it, and it was very seldom on television. So I think it was, if I remember right, I used to have when American Movie Classics, AMC actually did a lot of older movies, kind of like Turner does now. Um, They would have these on, and I would go through and record them. I'm pretty sure this is one that I recorded off there and watched while I was in law school. And I may have actually watched this with your mother. I'd record them and bring my VCR up when I'd go visit her in lacrosse. So I think that was the first time I saw it. But I do know my dad always talked about it a lot. For those in the audience not familiar with what a VCR is, just think of it as what (laughs) or what they used to use as essentially a tablet or a laptop for us now. A DVR. No, even that's like a dead technology because everything's on streaming, Dad. Sure. Karen, what about you? Yes. Yeah, so for me, I was when I was watching the all the best picture winners and saying, you know, going down the list, two of the movies that kind of struck me and impacted me the most as as favorites were Bridge on the River Kwai, David Lean's Bridge on the River Kwai, and Billy Wilder's The Lost Weekend. So. They were two that I underlined and said, you know, these this this is these are movies I didn't really know much about going in, and they really struck me. And one of my favorite aspects of Bridge in the River Kwai was William Holden, and then of course you have Billy Wilder. So you know you see they work together a bunch, and obviously the next step would have been Sunset Boulevard. But I remember seeing that he didn't win for Sunset Boulevard, but he did have an acting win for Stalag 17. So the movie kind of always was on my, like bookmarked on my watch list, but never really crossed paths. And then when uh, I was talking with you guys about coming on for my next episode, this is number four, by the way, I'm getting hunting closer to that, to that hat. Yes. Yes, you are. We have one earmarked for you as well. 
<laughs> I have like the whole set of like we have a slew of ten because you and our guest next week, who you know very well, uh, is also getting his fifth. So those will be sent out here for as kind of Christmas presents, let's say. Excellent, excellent. Can't wait. I'll, I'll have it on. Uh, I'll have it on for the for the my first episode that I'm a, that I'm a hat owner. I'll tell you that. But um, yeah, so it. it uh, Basically, after we scheduled it, I, I popped it on because it had, like I said, it's been on my watch list for so long. And I was doing some Billy Wilders. And and uh, yeah, then here a couple months later, I'm, I'm watching it again and doing a podcast on it again. So I come to this completely clean. I'd never seen the movie. In fact, I was not even really familiar with it until the last couple of years that you kept bringing it up every time we talk about William Holden and how much you enjoyed his performance in this. But it is fitting that our namesake yet again gives us another selection from his era of the 40s, 50s, and 60s with the company namesake that'd be. I'm surprised, though, that given that it's somewhat of a comedy and I'm sure there were certain moments at which he laughed, that you didn't decide to laugh shame him again this week like you did last week. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. If uh, you need to understand the reference, just go listen to our last episode. It's it's only about the first five, ten minutes in, so it won't take you very long. Either way, so what is this movie about? It's, it's two parts. One is it shows the mundane life of a soldier, in this case a prisoner. It's not glorified. There's nothing glorious about it. It's bad food. It's bad living conditions, it's um, boredom, and it also is the wrong man accused. So within the tradition of Ben-Hur and North by Northwest, where one man is accused and has to go about trying to vindicate himself. Yeah, I, I like this this movie and movies like this where you have characters trapped in a spot, and it's that who done it. you know, they can't trust each other, they don't know... They don't know who's who's the one, who's the mole, who's the who's the lemon in the mix here. And they all know it's not them and they're pointing fingers and they're causing things. You know, we mentioned the thing before, which is a, a classic one. Hateful Eight has that most recently. You have Glass Onion, uh, Clue. There's a little bit of that in Reservoir Dogs. So these people are just stuck in this kind of claustrophobic zone and they know one of them amongst themselves isn't to be trusted. And it unravels from there. And Billy Wilder as as adept that he is at storytelling really kind of does does a, a cool early version of this and crafts the characters and crafts the the story in a, in a right way showing you picking the right moment to show you who the bad guy is and then letting it develop from there yeah it's definitely a whodunit structurally honestly because it's adapted from a play a lot of plays at this point in time were kind of whodunit type of situations especially when anybody ends up dead it was not something I was necessarily expecting going in, especially because I think I've seen the first scene a couple of times because my father sent it to me as a TikTok. Somebody had like recorded or clipped the first like five to 10 minutes of the movie. But I really did start sitting up about the point where they show the fake queens for the first time and kind of the system with what's going on, that there is somebody actively trying to go against them. And so to me, it was somewhat of a survival movie on top of the whodunit. You know, there are threats both within and without. Obviously, Price being the inside man inside their ranks. But then the outside threat of they are surrounded by guards and they could be shot at any time. 
yet in that, he creates what I would say is some very energetic and loose characters in the two kind of, I'm trying to, I'm having a hard time putting my finger exactly on what I want to say, but they kind of reminded me of uh, C-3PO and R2 in Star Wars. Like the rest of it's kind of a dramedy, but you have this kind of comedic shtick in the middle of it. And they bring such levity to the movie so that it's not all doom and gloom. I think a lot of the modern aesthetic of Prisoner of War camps get into a lot of the nitty gritty. This was seen as something more that you could poke fun at so that you could break up some of the boredom. This reminds me in a a certain sense a lot of when we covered Mr. Roberts back in season one, that there was a a lot of boredom in between things as they were just making their way through the war. So that that came to mind a little bit, as well as the fact that I hadn't really heard of that movie either, and it was suggested, I believe, by you uh, by way of my grandfather. Correct. It, it's almost like it, they, it would be like if Kevin Smith did a World War II movie and threw Jay and Silent Bob into, into the barracks with, uh, <laughs> with, with them, you know, <laughs> the comedy duo. Except every, if you've talked with anybody who's done military service, every barracks, every unit had these one or two guys that were like this. My dad used to tell stories about a guy from his unit who was from Oklahoma, and his name was Wiley. And he would do the most bizarre things. And my dad, to the day he died, referred to anybody who goes to the sink and takes water and splashes it on their face and under their armpits as taking a Wiley bath. (laughs) He would talk about how he stunk so bad by the time they got out of boot camp that they did almost the same thing that uh, they did in uh, Kubrick's film. Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket, where, I mean, they they hosed him down, held him under the shower because he stunk so bad. This is is like a year or so after High Noon, too, so I wonder if there's a little bit of those kind of um, witch hunty vibes too, where, you know, you have Holden kind of in the room of people accusing him of, of things. I wonder if Wilder was putting any of that in there too. I didn't read or see anything on that, but I was just, I got getting those witch hunt vibes a little bit. I was wondering if maybe there might've been something there. No, I certainly didn't think about it. I didn't see anything in my, I guess, research either, but that's an interesting point to make that they would be very similarly structured movies. Obviously, with High Noon being a metaphor for the blacklist of the time. So then, with this being somewhat comedic, one of the other things that I really thought about in conceptualizing the movie, or you know, at least my relationship to things, given my father probably knows chapter and verse of every episode of Hogan's Heroes. Yes. I thought of that a lot while watching this film. I even thought of The Great Escape. And then I'm like, what would be kind of the offshoot of this if you didn't have a World War II pick. And so then I started to think, okay, MASH. You mix the comedy and the horror aspects or the seriousness of war. And so I wonder if this is somewhat of a precursor, even though it was not a particularly popular film at the time. I absolutely thought A Great Escape, for sure, with this one. Um, I'm not so familiar with Hogan's Heroes. I know exactly what it is and the tone of it and all. And I'm sure that that was, I mean, you'd have to think that they were leaning on this a little bit there. But, you know, there is that kind of, that that shticky comedic tone to this, which I think maybe could be off-putting for some people. Um, you know, I know I at least have one friend 
uh, who's not with us anymore, but really hated this film because of that. You know, it didn't really bother me so much because, you know, I kind of place some trust in Billy Wilder with what he's doing. And of course, he's a a person whose family was affected by the Holocaust and and all that. It was a, 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 you know, he escaped from that, uh, I think, Poland himself. So, you know, and, and he is a director who balances tone and finds different angles to tell his story. He doesn't sit in one genre, sit in one mood. So I, I kind of I kind of got it and it was okay with it. But you could see how maybe that tone, which I'm sure Hogan's Heroes and, and maybe even even Great Escape uh, a little bit with how, how goofy the, the heels are kind of portrayed in that too. Well, it really, I think it does a better job of humanizing it. I mean, the fact that shows the humor you you basically find humor in bizarre situations and you do things to entertain yourself this is the first movie that i could find and i went through great war films that talked about boredom talked about you know bad food talked about bad sleeping conditions talked about you know just the boredom of everyday life and you try to find ways to make it the best you can and sometimes it's by humor and finding humorous things to do everybody knew these characters and i think to some extent everybody knew that they needed to find some level of humor wherever they could because if you don't have humor you almost need to cry by the sheer horror of what you're going through well in talking about the boredom and trying to fill the void or the spaces in between. I think the movie that I thought obviously predates this one, but that would recognize this the best while also not undercutting some of the movie by being overly comedic would be all quiet on the Western front. And that's why I think that that until maybe this last year when it was updated was one of the preeminent classic war films. I think that this film really is the precursor of all the more modern uh, films, which do not glorify. I mean, it, this film does not glorify military service. Every other film up to this point kind of did that. There was not a really showing the the warts of service as much. Then you haven't seen All Quiet on the Western Front. Because there is there is no movie that is more destructive to the notion of the glorified or the glorification of war than that film. Yeah, it was uh, banned, I think, right? In, in yes. a couple different countries. But um, no, but I th- there was that stage of kind of rah rah. You know, the I know uh, there was a ton of like British uh, propaganda films that were out there to push enlistment and whatnot. You know, in in the forties. So this is definitely kind of coming in post that. So I, I can see what what you're saying there with that is this is kind of taking that step of, um, you know, we're not we're not making people at home get all all fired up to go hang out in uh, in this POW camp. Yeah, it wasn't Sands of Iwo Jima. It wasn't Battleground. It wasn't any of those late 40s, early 50s war films that talked about the glory on the battlefield. There's no Audie Murphy starring in this or John Wayne. In which we serve David Lean to John Wallace, John Wayne, yeah, Sergeant York, that stuff, Gary Cooper. I do find it a little bit ironic that this is also the same time as uh, From Here to Eternity, mm. which does kind of the same thing. Great film. Great film. 
So I have to slip this in here then just because I can. Is this a Christmas film? <laughs> oh boy, it's that time of year again, I guess. Well, I'll, I'll say this is like, cause I, I know the whole, obviously, you know, we're, we're poking the bear of Die Hard, I'm sure here with this, but I, I can, I'm at, I'm at peace with the fact that there's Christmas films and there's Christmas time films. Okay. So something like Eyes Wide Shut, something like Lethal Weapon, something like Batman Returns, all Christmas time movies, movies that take place at Christmas, even Die Hard. To me, a Christmas movie is a movie that has a Christmas message to it. Personally, that's, that's how I would separate through. So I would view this as a Christmas time movie. It's a Christmas movie. <laughs> I still think that it's intertwined in the plot somehow. Like it being Christmas has to do with something that's going on with them. It can't be incidental. And so I actually think this could, if you count that there is a Christmas celebration, they have a specific dance, they're all preparing for it. It has at least that element to the plotting of it. But I understand where you're coming from. It's just, I like to poke at my dad because, you know, I don't really care if Die Hard's a Christmas movie or not. I just don't think you can be inconsistent and say It's a Wonderful Life is and Die Hard is not. There's a Christmas song in this movie, too. That's true. This had transformation. This transformed a Scrooge-like character, and it was about redemption. Okay, so? So? You have the craggiest of people who continues to be craggy, but proved that he wasn't the one, like, betraying everybody? That's yeah. that's transformation? Yes. It, this isn't his transformation as much as it's the transformation of how others perceive him. I buy it. Okay. I think it's a stretch. So, uh, so eyes wide shut. Eyes wide shut is a Christmas movie too. Then, if we agree with that, <laughs> you got a transformation there too. It's a film I have yet to see, so I don't know. But oh, yeah. I will say, transformation probably has more to do with Easter in my mind than Christmas. Yeah, I had to bring this up. Uh, I had to bring this up too because I in in getting ready for this, I, I wanted to do a little Gmote prep, and I listened to your guys' previous billy wilder episodes and in i wondered if that was your reason for asking me which ones we'd covered oh yeah oh yeah i want to know uh you know what's on record here but i i one of your earliest episodes is some like it hot which might even be like one of your third or fourth episodes and <sighs> i i you know and i'm sure yeah. as a listen i've i've i think best picture cast started around the same time as you guys and we're we're a bi-weekly you guys are every week so you have way more episodes than we do but as a fellow podcaster, I know how that, that feeling of going back and listening to one of those early, older episodes when you're just trying to figure yourself out. But I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. And I got to say, on oh, that episode, Dana, you proclaimed that you guaranteed that Quentin Tarantino was influenced by Billy Wilder. And that if mm -hmm. you go out and find it, I guarantee you that you can go out and see there. Now, since you guys have recorded that, Tarantino, who has a podcast of his own, did a episode on a Billy Wilder movie, um, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. And on that episode, he talked about his favorite Billy Wilder movie, which is Five Graves to Cairo, a 1943 film. And he said that was the movie that he watched regularly while writing Inglorious Bastards, because there were not a lot of films about subverted history. And um, he wanted to get it from someone who lived it out there. And Five Graves to Cairo was movie. And I think he even had that movie on his sight and sound list here from the past year. So 
you hit the nail on the head there with that one. Certainly, <laughs> certainly heavily influenced. Tarantino was heavily influenced by Billy Wilder. I mean, I am glad and very grateful that people dig into our back episodes. I know that our guest for next week had to do it because we're doing a revisit episode with it being a holiday. And he went and listened to, I want to say our Zodiac podcast was like number 20 or something like that. But yeah, yeah. Going back to listening to those first couple, like when we were recording with lapel mics at a, a table in a conference room, the first couple of weeks before the pandemic. Hey, we've all it's, been there. It's such a strange thing to ever think I would go back to and, and watch that because I remember the, distinctly the first episode we recorded, we got so close to the hour mark and we were recording using the Anchor app that it we couldn't go over an hour. So all of a sudden we're scrambling to end the show with like 30 <laughs> seconds left. I mean, that's the level of stuff that you, you get when you're just starting and you have no clue what the hell you're doing. Uh, funny stuff, funny stuff. But yeah, I thought that Tarantino thing was 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 great because it really did tie in. And I even got some hateful eight vibes uh, with with Stalag, uh and and that just kind of being in that trapped zone and, and the paranoia and uh, the claustrophobia there, too. So certainly filmmakers generation to generation, you can see it tie in. Well, Dad, are you ready to dig into the movie further with your plot summary for us? I am. Stalag 17, directed by Billy Wilder, is a gripping and darkly comedic exploration of camaraderie and suspicion within a German prisoner of war camp during World War II. The film follows the lives of American POWs whose unity is shattered when they suspect a traitor in their midst. Wilder skillfully blends tension and humor, weaving a narrative that keeps the audience guessing until the final reveal. The film's standout performance comes from William Holden as the cynical and resourceful J.J. Sefton, a character who encapsulates the moral ambiguity of survival in the face of adversity. Stalag 17 is a masterclass in storytelling, balancing suspense, wit, and a poignant exploration of the human condition in the crucible of war. Thank you. Did you know? Otto Preminger always claimed that, as a director, he would only shout at actors if they were late or if they did not know their lines. Employed solely as an actor in this film, he told Billy Wilder at the start of filming that if he ever forgot his lines, he would present Wilder with a jar of caviar. Wilder later told interviewers that he soon had dozens of such jars. Did you know? William Holden did not like the part of Sefton as written, thinking him too selfish. He kept asking Billy Wilder to make Sefton nicer. Wilder refused. Holden actually refused the role, but was forced to do it by the studio. Did you know? To improve the chances for commercial success in West Germany, at that time already an important market for Hollywood, a Paramount executive suggested to Billy Wilder that he should make the camp guards Poles rather than Germans. Wilder, whose mother and stepfather had died in the concentration camps, furiously refused and demanded an apology from the executive. When it didn't come, Wilder did not extend his contract at Paramount. Did you know? In order to keep the actors' reactions for the film plot's twists as close to genuine as possible, the film was shot in sequential order. The first scene was filmed first, and so on, which is contrary to how most movies are generally filmed. Did you know? This film was one of the biggest hits of Billy Wilder's career. He expected a big piece of the profits. The studio accountants informed him that since his last picture, Ace in the Hole from 1951, lost money, 
The money that the picture lost would be subtracted from his profits on this film. Wilder soon left Paramount shortly after. And with that, we will take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 191st episode, it's Thanksgiving, so we have another revisit on tap with Zodiac from 2007 that you can catch our original episode on it from our first season. Directed by David Fincher, written by James Vanderbilt, music by David Shire, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo, and Robert Downey Jr. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. First thing up, Dad, is best performance. Who do you have? Holden. He carries the movie. All right. Round two. Kieran, do you also have Holden? I have him as my secondary. Okay. Because I have him as charismatic. So we've gone all across the board then. Okay. I mean, his character is the most memorable of the film. Probably. My best secondary performance is probably as memorable. But, you know, I think this was Holden and his, uh, the spot that he became really a big Hollywood star. This is about the time that he was in the royalty of Hollywood. He was uh, Rob, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Davis's best man uh, about the same time as this film. And so he was actively involved in the, the Screen Actors Guild. He was actively involved in what was going on in Hollywood in general, and he was up for a lot of the big parts. This was just him. I mean, Sunset Boulevard was the year before, and he was awesome in that. And this performance just goes on you wanna, to the you same level. You want to try that again? Because Sunset Boulevard was three years before this. You sure it was three? Yes, it's 1950. And this is 51. This is 53. Okay. Well, and Holden's performance in Sunset Boulevard was awesome at that point in time, too. Yeah, Holden's great. Uh, he's so charismatic and um, in his own way, you know, because he, he's not he's not your traditional charisma. He's got a, man, just a swagger about him that um, that works great in a movie where it's everyone against one. And to me, he was on screen was by far the best part of this movie. I, I had him as my secondary because I have an off screen person as my primary, but I, I love him as an actor. It's it, it hurts me a little bit when uh, actors or directors or writers kind of disown certain performances. Not that he disowned this, but kind of said, ah, oh, he didn't consider it a great performance and he must have been a makeup performance, yada, yada. Cause I really do think this is a good performance considering the balance of tone and uh, what he's asked to do with the script uh, I, I really enjoyed it, and I think it's um, it's worthy of an Oscar win. You know me. I have very difficult times with trying to judge acting. But there's a through line before, I think, the four or so movies of his that we've either discussed or, yes, it would be four movies exactly for the biggest parts that he ever had. So we've discussed Sunset Boulevard, we've discussed Network, and Bridge on the River Kwai. And again, if you have not listened to The Bridge on the River Kwai, just listen to about the first 30 seconds of that episode. You will uh, immediately be thankful that I suggested that to you. Regardless, he's always a character that does best when he's thumbing his nose at the establishment. This movie, I think, is the softest version of that. 
he does it in Bridge. He does it in Sunset Boulevard. He does it especially well in Network to me. This is one where he's a little bit more of a hardened, cynical, deal-making type. And I don't think it suits him quite as well as I thought he married the other parts. And he was bringing something that didn't always quite fit in the role to me. Again, I'm not a great judge of acting because I don't know what is good or what isn't good necessarily. But it was a little bit more muted for me otherwise. But he's still charismatic. I thought he was a big enough movie star. He was capable enough that he still pulls off a pretty good performance where it felt a little bit strained for me at times that he could just with his sheer charisma exude what it was needed for this movie and push it forward. And that's actually why I thought the person who carried the movie for me was Robert Strauss's animal. Okay. He's my most. Yeah. He's the most memorable character throughout the entirety of the film. He has all the best gags. He has all the best quippy stuff. And he had to have been a really talented guy because I remember that when that 70s show was on, there was a big rumor for a while until it was proven later that Ashton Kutcher has like one of the highest IQs for an actor ever because you have to be extraordinarily smart to play that dumb of a character as his in that 70s show. So to me, Robert Strauss must have been like a freaking genius to be able to play something so bizarrely stupid yeah he was my most charismatic uh robert strauss it's a great a, a great performance there uh and um i love a good you know it's cool that he got the oscars this is not a, an oscar nomination a typical oscar nomination i like those supporting comedic performances that get it you brought up uh, mr roberts before jack lemon has one um alan arkin and little miss sunshine just to tie in with the the odd couple duo but um uh in fortune cookie you have uh, Walter Matthau uh, winning his supporting actor in kind of a comedic role there too. So I, I, I kind of dig that, that it's a, a different bit there, but he, to me was the charisma of this movie. He uh, was uh, put a smile on your face. He, he, it, listen, he was hamming it up. He was really, he was really going for it. He was, certainly was not, um, you know, the Lawrence Olivier of this movie, you know, as far as uh, brilliant stage acting, but he was having fun and he made you have fun as an audience. So I, he was my most charismatic, my best performance is actually Billy Wilder in this. Uh, I thought um, it, it being a heavily kind of rewritten, recrafted play to make it work within the vessel he's using. Uh, I thought he crushed it. Um, I loved I loved the dynamic of script to actor to camera, how um, he works with his director's photography to make certain elements of the plot uh, really stand out, particularly the tying of the light bulb, the chess popping up out of the scenery while we don't know the guys hiding in the back. That kind of stuff is all that, that Billy Wilder touch. And he, he just, to me was uh, the real true star of this, of this filmmaking. This is a movie that is worthwhile and people's movie. People should go back and watch. It's obvious to me, certain movies that are made or adapted from plays because the scenery doesn't seem to shift at all. And until I kind of saw that this was adapted from a play, and I looked up kind of the initial information about it. I couldn't really tell that it was supposed to be all in the one room of the barracks because there were so many other exterior things that were going on and things that he used to enhance the stuff that was supposed to be going on in the play that I'm sure was happening offstage. He was able to visually represent a lot of it. 
including the ending sequence where he's hiding in the water tower. I mean, that is a very good sequence of them doing some very kinetic things to try and break out and Price getting shot down, et cetera, et cetera. I thought those were all enhanced well. That's why he's my best secondary for his work on adapting something, but not making it feel so restricted in a way that, for a recent example, was it Ma Rainey's Black Bottom that felt just so like hemmed in when I saw the film itself. I didn't dislike the film. It just, it felt so boxed by its caging and trying to stay close to its source material. This movie never felt that way. Agreed. Best secondary, Dad? Secondary is Strauss. See, I'm old enough that I remember Strauss on Beverly Hillbillies. I remember Strauss being on, oh, uh, The Fugitive with David Jansen. I mean, I looked up his filmography and his TV. The guy worked continuously as a character actor in film and on Hollywood for 30 years. And he a lot of times played the same guy. He was either like Animal or he was a slimy, you know, like a a cheap, slimy private detective type. And he did those characters and he did them all the time and he was good at them. And he played to what his strengths were and did it very well. Um, I think it also played up well in this film and putting him in those in this situation. So I thought it was a performance was memorable. Um, he had a lot to work with and he did it, did work with it well. So we have everybody's best secondary and we have my charismatic and Wells had uh, Strauss's charismatic. Strauss was also my charismatic or he was okay, my charismatic. So then what's your charismatic pop? I have Billy Wilder. I had thought about this before and then I started thinking about it. There are right now for me, three directors that if you tell me they directed this film, even if I've never heard it, I will now watch. Okay. One being Wilder, two Hitchcock, three Spielberg. I don't may not know the film. Tell me they directed it. I will watch it because more likely than not, even if it's not their best work, it's something that I'm going to enjoy and probably remember. See, you're taking all the objectivity out of our eventual episode that's on the schedule for next year, the Pantheon of Directors episode. Oh, well, that's assuming everybody listens to every show and remembers. I suppose. But we do have a few super fans. Okay. Although I don't know how many people are going to really be clamoring to listen to this one necessarily. This is a kind of a deep cut. Yeah, the old Stalag 17 deep cut. I love it. All right, let's move to best scene then. I have, let's see here, 10 down. I have Manfredi and Johnson killed, so basically the first 10 minutes. Then I have the roll call where they uh, first come out of the barracks and you get the opening kind of introduction of Preminger's character. I have Chow Time. I have Game of Chess, which I will say is probably the most is the scene that made me really sit up in my chair and like, oh, that's what this movie is going to be about. And that's when they revealed the hollow queens and the light pole device. Then I have Animal and Shapiro sneaking into the uh, Russian camp. Uh, I have the introduction of Lieutenant James Dunbar and then the story of him blowing up the train. Then I have the Geneva inspector. I have Price informing on the delay matches 
device where Sefton is overlooking that. I have Christmas Day, so the kind of the dance and such, and then I have the actual escape. I know I've covered quite a bit of the movie in those 10, but any others that you'd like to nominate? I did have one uh, important scene there. Um, the cooking of the egg on the stove. Oh, scene. sure. Uh, just because it, it really kind of exemplified how desperate they are and how like one little egg is this big a thing. So much they're considering eating the shells. And that kind of segues into a, a lot of character development. Um, of of Sefton and and how he gets things and what he does from there. So I, I thought that is a real important scene in the film. Since you also have seen that film, it reminded me a lot of the initial goose scene. I think it's a goose in All Quiet when they first get that for the first time and they're yep. trying to rip through that. Yep, that was the callback for me. Yeah, it's it's important to show that desperation. Okay, so then what is the best scene? I'll go first for me if you want. To me, the best scene is. Sefton calling out the security and the turn and the whole uh, showdown with with the crew uh, when we fought because we're, we're so pent up as an audience this whole thing we know he's innocent we see him kind of just constantly getting discarded and then now we know it's it's Price who's the bad guy so we're waiting for him to get his comeuppance and when we finally uh, see uh, Sefton go mano y mano in front of the crowd and the crowd turn on Price and security. To me, that's the that's the scene of the film for me. Yeah, I have the inverse of that. Instead of the reveal, it's the fact that there is actually a informer in their midst. And I go back to the scene where you reveal the hollow queens for the first time and the light pole that Schultz is pulling on. To me, that was where the movie really took off and it, it transformed into the whodunit. Because I'll be honest... I'm not sure I 100% believed Sefton was not the informer up until they truly revealed Price. And so I thought that was the good staging by Wilder of the movie is he kept me on my toes wondering who it actually was up until the actual reveal. And then I was somewhat surprised by that even. Absolutely. I have Christmas Day. The reason I have that is for this reason. It was just... You thought Shapiro was hot? Yeah. Anyway... Um, no, because it was a great point of staging by Wilder because suspense and ten- and drama tension are greater when you start with a point where there's humor. You go from humor to the real intricacies of what's going on and the, and the suspense of what's going to happen and who the, the stoolie is and all of that. By starting out with the comedy, it builds that tension. It gives more room for that tension to build than if it would have been just straight. You know, they're in the thing and they're all trying to figure it out. And then all of a sudden it's revealed. I think it gives a a lot stronger vehicle for the suspense to build to the disclosure. So for my favorite scene, I'm going to nominate the reveal or the escape at the end. I uh, really appreciated that they landed the plane as well as they did, because I was wondering, even when he poses the question of, well, how do you get rid of the guy who's actually the stool pigeon? You know, do you tell everybody and then we throw him out or he's just moved to another area where he can be as dangerous as he is here? Or do we try and kill him and then we're all of a sudden under the knife ourselves? So the kind of intricacy or the cleverness with how they 
figure out how to dispose of him while also using it to their advantage, I thought was a really great use of story uh, to come up with that creative of a solution. Yeah, same here. The escape, uh, the throwing, tossing him out to the to the gunman, and the uh, the escape, cutting the cutting through, uh, all that that end sequence there for me is just is great. It's 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 an exodus that the audience needs after being trapped in this barracks all movie. Dead. Favorite scene is sneaking into the Russian camp, because again, this just is the hijinks that you you do stuff like this just for your own source of entertainment. <laughs> I just thought it was great because uh, I could just see soldiers in a POW camp. I could see college freshmen. I could see all kinds of these bizarre situations where boredom and stress build up and you do something like this. As far as most indelible moment, what do you have? For me, I had uh, the escape because that was that was the moment that I remembered was Peter Graves stumbling around out in the uh, quad area there, the parade ground shouting in German with the tin cans clanging and the guns being shot. I remembered that scene before I started the movie. That was the one scene that I remembered vividly. I remembered the basic plots of the movie, but I didn't remember any of the scenes other than that real well. How do you say, Timmy, have you seen a grown man naked in German? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all the quotes are ready. Indelible for me. I mean, when I think Billy Wilder, I always got to think like, what's the shot? You know, what's that shot that imprints in your brain? And uh, there's two that come to mind in this one. You you brought up one earlier, Tom, that's going to ultimately be my indelible moment in Dunbar in the water tower. You know, the camera pans over the camp and you see him kind of pinned back and moving around and trying to stay warm the best he can, dry the best he can. You know, that's the image that burns into my mind when I think about Stalag 17. The other one that I think about, too, is when Sefton Holden is lying in the bed and he sees the shadow of the of the light uh, tied up and he kind of first realizes what's going on, puts the pieces together. That's such a Billy Wilder shot that you know, harkens back to the the whiskey bottle and the lamp in, in Lost Weekend. Uh, so I, I, I those are like those two big shots for me. But if I have to pick one of the two, I'm going to go with with the, the water tower shot and, and uh, Dunbar up there. Yeah, I thought that was another clever device framing that uh, I don't know if that's in the original play or if that's a device that they invented for the movie, but to have him hide there specifically, I thought was kind of ingenious. It really would be one of the last places to look. But for me, again, going back to the first time that I really sat up with the movie, it was the light cord and the black King. Those are the two things that I, I remember the most because they're the props that really establish everything with the movie, that there's an informant, this is how they're doing it. And that every time you can see that, because it's a visual representation, if there's something going on or there's new information being passed or whatever else, and you're always looking to see, is somebody tipping it, you know, just a little too soon or doing something a little too clever? That to me is always going to be what sticks out about this movie. So that looks like another good spot for our second break. We will be right back. (laughs) 
Before we jump back into the episode, releasing in the early part of this December, friend of the show Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our special monthly series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month, we're covering Iron Man 3 from 2013. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Kevin Turin, 44, American film and television producer, Euphoria, X, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, John Bailey, 81, American cinematographer, Ordinary People, The Big Chill, Groundhog Day, American Gigolo. He was actually the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, 2017 to 2019. Uh, and he was uh, also, a, uh, he photographed the, the very underrated uh, Wolfgang Peterson's In the Line of Fire, starring uh, Clint Eastwood, tie-in from our, uh, our <laughs> Gran Torino episode. Uh, yes. two, two others, uh, two um, Best Picture nominees, uh, Accidental Tourist and... As good as it gets. Two, two I, I actually really like. I don't, I don't know if they're the most popular in the world, but I, I dig them both. I like as good as it gets. I think it gets a little bit more panned after the fact now, especially with Jack winning for that particular movie. But I still enjoy the movie. I think it was a bit outstanding as far as I'm concerned. And it still has some great lines in it. So some, some very good line deliveries. But uh, I have not yet seen The Accidental Tours. But I'll just say, as far as John Bailey, this is another one of those names that I would have known nothing about him until now we have him on In Memoriam. And it's a reason why I enjoy doing this section of the program. We originally just started as me trying to do an outreach part to have Dana do some more pieces of the show, but he always has appreciated and enjoyed the recognition of the In Memoriam section during the Oscars. And so that was kind of the uh, ingenue. But this is the kind of guy that I would have known nothing about him, except now we're celebrating him. And he's got an amazing history within the film industry that I would have otherwise not known about. So I'm glad that we got a chance to recognize him. Obviously, nothing against Mr. Turn. He just doesn't have quite the level of the resume that Bailey did, partly due to the fact that he was half his age. So somewhat tragic at 44. But, you know, a former president of the Academy who shot some just great 80s and 90s films. I'm glad that we're, we're getting a chance to recognize him. Dane, are you an In the Line of Fire guy? Uh, yes, I love the film. Uh, my wife, this is and, just yes, absolutely... In episodes of us talking about my mother on the show again, go ahead. <laughs> yes, was absolutely creeped out and it got up and just left the room and was in the kitchen banging dishes doing the dishes as loudly as she could so she didn't have to hear John Malkovich continue his creepy voice. Oh, God. She, she had nightmares. She sat up and would, like, yell it for, like, two or three days. She kept having dreams about John Malkovich <laughs> chasing her. <laughs> oh, oh, we had Malkovich on two weeks ago when we did Rounders. Then we had her on to talk about The Odd Couple last week. And now we're talking about her and her problems with Malkovic this week. Quite the streak going. You can't Quite make this streak. stuff up. 
We talked about the the comedic supporting actor nomination, but we gotta love the villainous supporting actor nomination. Oh, yeah. So that's that's one of Malkovich's Oscar nominations. Great stuff. Great stuff. Yep. So we remember these here fondly for their contributions with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best funniest lines. I only have three. I'll just start with Sefton. There are two people in this barracks who know I didn't do it. Me and the guy that did do it. Shorbach. I'm grateful for a little company. I suffer from insomnia. Dunbar. Did you ever try 40 sleeping pills? <laughs> okay. Animal. Of all the hoarding cruds. Shapiro. I'm telling you, Animal, these Nazis ain't kosher. You could say that again. I'm telling you, Animal, these Nazis ain't kosher. I said you could say it again. That doesn't mean you have to repeat it. Shapiro. Hey, Schultz. Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Schultz. Yeah. Then droppen Sie dead. German officer, who beat you? Dunbar. No one beat me. We were playing Pinochle. It's a rough game. Price. Are you questioning me? Sefton. Getting acquainted. I'd like to make one friend in this barracks. Well, don't bother, Sefton. I don't like you. I never did, and I never will. A lot of people say that. The first thing you know it, they get married and live happily ever after. Sefton. When was Pearl Harbor Price, or don't you even know that? Price. December 7th, 41. Sefton. What time? Price. Smugly. Six o'clock. I was having dinner. Sefton. Six o'clock in Berlin. Sefton, they were having lunch in Cleveland. Am I boring you boys? Hoffy, go on. Sefton, he's a Nazi. Price is. For all I know, his name is Preisinger or Preishofer. Oh, sure, he lived in Cleveland, but when the war broke out, he came back to the fatherland like a good little bootst. He spoke their lingo, so they sent him to spy school and fixed him up with phony dog tags. Sefton, if I ever run into any of you bums on a street corner, let's just pretend we've never met before. I'm out. I am? I'm out. Oh, wow. All right. Let's move to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Who would like to start? I'll take it, I guess. So Legacy, this is interesting here. So you guys had you recently had a, an episode where you revisited... Casablanca. I guess you've revisited a few times, but a real good episode because you have you have a, a lot of kind of dynamic movie conversations. I don't know if it's a great episode for Casablanca fans because it it is put under the classic film itself is put under the light a little bit. But there is a lot of talk about going at Casablanca's. Do modern audiences go back and watch that? And as a listener, I'm like, well, if they're not going back to Casablanca, how much are they going back to from that era alone? You know, so. There is an element of as we move forward, and we're only talking about 120 years of movies or so, but when we get to 140, 150, 160, are these sorts of eras going to be lost? And if they're not going to watch Casablanca, they're sure as hell not going to watch Stalag. It is a fascinating conversation. I think this and rewatchability were the two categories where it it came up the most. I I don't know that this is really remembered much, um, even within the Billy Wilder filmography. Uh, it's not one of the the big few that are on the AFI 100 or uh, wasn't the best picture. I guess the best acting win is the biggest legacy and William Holden's lone win. 
So I guess within the industry there, I can give it a three on that, even though it's got a little bit of the makeup status. So I think I'm probably being a little nice with a three on the industry. With the audience, I don't know that I can go much higher than a one and a half. You know, I, I give him that half point because I, I I I enjoy it, but I don't know that this has really lived in the modern viewer. So four and a half total. So for a lot of the same arguments, I have a very similar esque score. First off, I agree with you wholeheartedly that given that I hadn't really heard of this, and to a degree, I think I would probably count myself as part of the industry. In some way, we're promoting classic film on this show. And even though we don't really receive any major profits or profits at all for doing this program, we're still elevating stuff that is back to, I think, at least 1935, because that's our oldest movie that we've discussed. I think that was A Night at the Opera so far. We have a couple others that I think are going to go older next year. But this is not a film that I was familiar with without my dad mentioning it, or I guess my grandfather passing it on as well. It has really only the reputation of being William Holden's only win, as you mentioned. So that may keep it a little bit more alive. And it's part of at least one great director's filmography. So it's associated with a few good people, but they've never even bothered to like restore this. One of the things that I'm going to bring up in classicness the film looks really degraded. It's bad. It, it it doesn't look clear or crisp in the way that they've restored several of the other films of that era. I mean, Casablanca looks pretty modern, you know, all things considered compared to this film. It's, this film is very grainy wherever you watch it because I don't think anybody really cared to bother to update it or do anything else because no one was clamoring to see it. So I actually have it as even lower than you for many of the same reasons. I had a two for the industry, and I thought I was being a little fair or a little bit um, forgiving. And uh, I have a one for the audience. I can't go a full zero because this isn't something that like nobody has watched. But it, it's or that has a negative. I, I would say the, the one way to get below a one is if it has a negative legacy. But uh, I don't quite get that from this movie. So I have a three. I have a little higher for legacy than both of you because of the industry. I think this film started a trend in motion pictures of showing the more cynical, mundane, boring, comical or comedic style of film. I don't think with this film you would have had uh, The Great Escape, Bridge Over the River Kwai to the extent it was, The Dirty Dozen, MASH. It, it spawned a TV series. There are so many similarities. My wife was pointing them out. The, the sar- barrack sergeant's name is Schultz. The commander's was lamenting the fact that no one has ever successfully escaped from Stalag 17 which is, again, Hogan's Heroes. I mean, there's so much parallel. It's like they took this film and converted it into a comedy, and it was, at its time in the mid-60s, one of the most popular shows on television. So it's had more of a legacy by its impact on film and television 
than the film itself did. So I went with a four for the industry, but I agree with your assessment, Karen, about the public. It's a 1.5. It's a would be a one, but for people who are big film people, they know what this film is for the most part and are appreciative of Holden's performance and the fact that it's a Billy Wilder film. So I'm at 5.5. So that's a 4.33 average between the three of us. Impact and significance. I guess I'll lead off here. I'm a little conflicted. So supposedly this is one of the bigger movies of Wilder's career. I know that a lot of the movies he made were much more autoristic and a bit ahead of their time for how the audience was receptive. Clearly with Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard, those are more of the classic variety that I don't think were quite received in the moment that they were made in the way that I think we think about them now. So for this to be somewhat successful, I still can't find what the official numbers are. Supposedly this made up to $10 million, but it doesn't really register in the box office numbers wherever I found them. I mean, if it were truly that it made $10 million domestically in like the U.S. and Canada, then we're talking that it would have been like the number five film of the year. But because I didn't see that, I don't know where it actually placed. So it's hard for me to say, and I don't think that this was something that the public went out and sought out at the same time. So that's where I'm a bit conflicted with some of this. Now, on the industry side of it, I gave it a few more plaudits. Big time director, a notable Hollywood star of the time, had a few nominations included so that it was getting some recognition beyond that. And while I don't count the nominations or the lack thereof, usually for or against a film in the way that my co-host does, I still think it is, I guess, an extra feather in your cap, even if I'm not going to hold it against you if you didn't have them. Particularly given this is kind of a an odd movie to receive nominations for. It's an adaption of a play and it's kind of comedic. Even for the time, the Oscars doesn't often nominate a lot of comedic performances and it got one supporting actor nominations for a comedic role. So I went with a 3.5 for the industry and because I'm not sure what to do on the audience side of things, I kind of split the baby and went with a 2.5. So I have a six. I have an answer to your question. I actually found the publication uh, in Variety with the list of grossing films for 1953. Any guess on where this actually uh, was in the list of films? 12? I was going to say 8. It was 11. Oh. Any guess on which uh, what the top five were for 1953? From here to eternity, for sure. That was number two. I think HUD was ahead of it. That was not in the top five. It was like uh, six or seven. So Peter Pan, I think, was the number one for that year, if I remember right. No, it was number five. Okay, because I have it listed as the number one for that year. It was number five. According to Variety's article. Shane... The number one film is a film that everybody has forgotten about, and it, like, dwarfed. It was five times the amount of money generated from that film as from here to eternity. 
which was second. The Robe. I've never heard of that. It's a film that was about the Roman centurion who took the robe of Christ at the crucifixion. It was one of my mother's favorite films. Every year at Easter, the robe would come on network TV, and my mother would insist on watching it so she could cry for two hours. (laughs) Richard Burton is the only recognizable name that I see in this. Otherwise, I don't know anybody else in the movie. What were three and four? Three was Shane. Okay. And four, How to Marry a Millionaire. All right. I mean, it's an odd movie year in that regard then. Yeah. Anyway, so I went for the industry with a four because, again, the immediate impact and it made back its budget. It wasn't huge. Actually, I'm going to reduce it to a 3.5 considering that it was 11. And for the public, again, I went with a 2.5. And I'm going to say, so that's six overall. That sounds familiar. So I I gave a, uh, for the, the public, I gave it a, a three, considering, you know, figured pretty good at the box office for what it was. I, I kind of do lean a bit into nominations and such. Uh, I also want to kind of call attention to this this run here from Sunset Boulevard at 1950 to, um, to 57. Uh, so he does, uh, this is Billy Wilder here. Billy Wilder does Sunset Boulevard in 50. In 51, he does Ace in the Hole. In 53, he does Stalag 17. 54, Sabrina. 55, Seven Year Itch. 57, he does Spirit of St. Louis and Witness in the Prosecution. And this is essentially right before his some like it hot apartment bang bang 5960 so this is right at the precipice of a big time run here for billy wilder and he the key to me is him getting that best director nomination if this was like a best actor throwaway throw him the bone and you know we're going to give holding his makeup oscar uh we give a supporting uh nomination then that's kind of one of those throwaway movies but the best director nomination is key for me uh so that's why i i was tugging between the three and a half and a four and i guess dana since you backpedaled to a three and a half i'll 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 put the put the pedal to the metal and get it up to the four so seven total there so that's a 6.33 average between the three of us i didn't ask if you needed any help i figured you had it yeah because i mean that's a pretty great three movie run with witness for the prosecution some like it hot in the apartment but big time He's he's got Love in the Afternoon from 57 as well, which I haven't heard of. And Spirit of St. Louis, which okay. Like if you if you got Sabrina or the Seven Year Itch attached to those, or something after the apartment that was kind of of the same level, then maybe. But uh otherwise, because I've been looking for another director that had the same four movie run or something similar or close enough to Hitchcock's Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, and The Birds in consecutive movies. There's only one other director that I think is close, and uh, unfortunately they have 1941 smack in the dab in the middle of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Spielberg. Wyler doesn't really have that four-movie run, but he has that decade run where he's doing a lot of relevant movies. Like Ace in the Hole is 
that's a very notable movie there. I mean, you know, Spirit of St. Louis is not going to hold up in a four movie run, but you know, but taking taking in the earlier part of the decade, Sunset Boulevard, Ace and the Whole, Stalag, Sabrina, into the Some Like It Hot apartment. I mean, that's a that's a monster decade for him. If if you real if you take them all and weight them, it's a it's a big run for him. It's a, it's a good the fifties into the sixties is a good really good run for Billy Wilder. Yeah, he only has twenty seven official credits um, from roughly uh, thirty four through eighty one. So that's quite a filmography there. Well, if you're going to do the run, it's basically only three films. But you have Bridge Over the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, and Dr. Shivago for David Lean. But that's not four. I know. Is there some time in between those two? Yeah, he didn't direct a whole lot. When he did, it was uh, pretty darn good. I love Brief Encounter, too. That's on my David Lean Rushmore for sure. I haven't seen Passage to India. I know that he was nominated for that as well. I love his rendition of Oliver Twist. Uh, that's a real kind of dark. Uh, it's just very much the opposite of the uh, Oliver with an exclamation point um, that won Best Picture. But uh, I have to see uh, Great Expectations too. I hear that's pretty good also. But Lean's got a some of his earlier work is is interesting before he gets into the to the sweeping epics. Well, and I think that's why he didn't direct as much after that point is is that he made three just gigantic movies and it took a long time to put those together yeah and the critic the the critical response to ryan's daughter and them burying him really kind of broke him and 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 made him not want to do it anymore because all the a a movie he cared about a lot and the critics just panning it and burying it and he goes you know why am i doing this why this is this is a toxic lifestyle i need to go do something more more uh more positive with my time well, because there's only one other movie than in a movie you uh, just mentioned, A Passage to India, as he, he does that as his last film 14 years after that. So there's a big gap yet again. I believe he was supposed to uh, direct – he was supposed to direct, direct something before he uh, passed. I, I think it might have been Mutiny, a remake of Mutiny and the Bounty or he, he was working on something before he got cancer in the early 90s. There was a plan for an early 90s movie for him don't fully remember what it was but all right let's move to novelty then i'll go first i'm going to give some extra points that 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 dana gave in uh impact and significance this is where i'll kind of kick in with indelibility because we do have the prisoner of war style movie become pretty popular and i I, you know i'm sure there were a couple before this but you know as far as like big time director big time actor in the main spotlight you know, Do you want uh, me to chip in with what those were? Oh, sure. So I went and looked up uh, at least the top 35 like prisoner of war films on several different lists. And there were only three films that I could come up with that were said to be before this film. The Captive Heart from 1940, Act of Violence from 1948, and The Grand, Grand Illusion, Illusion, which is yeah. a, yep. a French film from 1937. And... None of them were really comedic. They were actually very serious, very somber films. So this would be something a little bit off the beaten path for both its subject material and its tone. Yeah, and, and you know, when we're talking American prisoner war too, the novelty of leading into the mashes and the great escapes and the Hogan's heroes, 
I, I don't know if I can fully credit Grand Illusion for for striking the spirit behind Hogan's Heroes. Um, so I, I'm going to give a little some points here to to Stalag 17 for that. Uh, so I went a six. I think six is is might be a little nice, but I think it's fair. So I always credit. Is this a little bit audacious in its subject material and its tone? So as I've kind of mentioned already, I have a little bit higher grade for both of those. But where I would knock this film a little bit is some of its execution. Not necessarily in a storytelling, but it doesn't feel like it was filmed always the best. I think there's a lot of examples of some very overacting among the smaller members of the cast. I don't think this was Holden like really giving his all necessarily. So I I think it's a little bit humorous that uh, he won for this and then was kind of regretful that he won for this as somewhat of a makeup Oscar in his own mind. I had a 6.5 because I think we're, we're grasping a little bit to say that this is the direct precursor. It laid some groundwork for what would maybe come after it, but to say that it had the effect where it directly caused or was of mind when those were being made, I think might be a little bit of a stretch too. So 6.5 feels somewhat warranted to me. What I'm saying, it was the precursor. What it did was, I mean, what we had was we had a large population in the 1950s of sailors, soldiers, Marines coming back who had been through combat and lived this. And there was a certain feeling, especially in Hollywood, that they didn't want to offend them. So they didn't do things that were more realistic. I mean, look at the thing. I mean, um, I just got done watching with my wife the 2010 series, uh, The Pacific. Again, I'd watched it before. Bob Leckie, who was in there, apparently decided to write his memoir, My Helmet for a Pillow, because he was in New York at the time working for the uh, or for UPI, and he went to see South Pacific with his wife. And he got up in the middle of the performance and walked out, and he said, it wasn't like that. This made it possible that you could sell tickets to a post-World War II adult group where men had been through this and they could be entertained by it because it connected with them. Okay. So I don't think it's just that it's the precursor. I think it opened the door for other similar type films to come out after that. And when I'm saying that this was the precursor, that's what I'm talking about. And when I'm looking at this as novelty, the only film that I really found that was as quite about this was Grand Illusion, which I thought was interesting because apparently Dick Cavett asked Orson Welles what the two greatest films were. He said, well, or that he would like to preserve. He said, Grand Illusion and whatever the second one is. And that uh, sounds like Orson. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I'm going to go with a nine because I think this really had a lot more impact on cinema and how war was portrayed and its relationship to the post-war uh, soldiers. I don't think this, I think this film started it. And I think what it reached its culmination was ultimately saving Private Ryan when so many of that generation finally was able to open up 
and do an absolutely raw presentation of what it was like in combat. I'll I'll uh, I'll move myself I'll move myself up to match you, Tom. To so we both have six fives there on that. Of course, Sorry to after make you, I do, do the, the math, math already, <laughs> 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 gotta keep you on your toes here. No huddle offense. So anyway, that was a seven point three three average between the three of us. Classicness. I'll let Dad go first. He hasn't gone first yet, and this is normally his category. I mean, it's a prisoner of war film. I mean, the sheer fact that they had female prisoners from the Germans at least had some level of diversity. And, of course, the United States Army at that time, especially the Air Corps, was segregated. So you weren't going to have a large or have a a influx of African-American prisoners in the camp. Um, Not to mention the fact that even if they did, they would have been segregated from the others. Even the Germans were doing that especially after Jesse Owens in 36. And uh, so it's incredibly difficult to come up with. I didn't find anything that was problematic, and I didn't find anything that was real positive. So our normal starting point is kind of more or less a seven and going up and down from there. So I'm just leaving it right at seven because I couldn't find any reason to go down or up. All right, so I'm glad you kind of did that because... I didn't really go up nor down necessarily. I guess my main reasoning for where I went is I have a slight gradation off of a seven. So comedic POW movies, I think, are somewhat of a bygone era. You'd have a difficult time trying to sell anybody on doing anything comedic in war with the attitude that we've basically endured over the last 20 years. Frankly, since about the Vietnam films started coming out, Apocalypse Now and Platoon and Coming Home and all of those other films, The Deer Hunter, they were all so super serious about war that it kind of ruined the comedic war film or the like overly patriotic, uh, heroic war film. So these are somewhat more of a classic age than anything else. How can you say that Full Metal Jacket was not funny? Uh, the first half. <laughs> so other than that, I agree with you. There isn't much in the way of it being either ahead of its time or aging poorly. I guess my biggest nitpick is, is that they haven't really restored the film and it's very grainy. So I went with a 6.5, but just so that I didn't go with a seven. I have to ding this. I have to pick a category to ding this one up, and this is the one I, I picked. Uh, when I think of Billy Wilder movies, I I think of visual events. You know, uh, whether it's Sunset Boulevard, Lost Weekend, even some like it Hot, Double Indemnity. These are these are really beautiful black and white films. The Apartment. The first time I turned this one on, ah, I mean, I had to check my television set. I mean, this is a this is a ter- there's no trans the transfer here is terrible. It looks like an old television show, and a classic movie's got to look a little better like this from 1953, so I I have to give it a hit there. You know, the tone I could see being off-putting maybe for some, you know, the the, um, while he was my most charismatic, Strauss's performance is a little hammy and shticky and a little bit of its time. I hate to be the harsh one on this one, but uh, I'm going to go five. I'm going to go with a five on this one. It's not that harsh. 
No, not really. All right, so that's a 6.17 between the three of us. Rewatchability. Since it is your namesake category, or our test is, I'll let you go first. Yeah, so the I guess if we're talking about when, you know, if what's going to make me put this movie on again, and if it's on, will I keep it on? The Billy Wilder of it all will kind of bring me back to it. And um, it is a movie that I will revisit because of that. I'm also always down to watch a William, Hol- William Holden movie. So it's going to get probably a solid three there for me. Um, if it's on, will I keep it on? That's going to kind of probably depend on the part of the movie it's in. So maybe I'll I'll go a 2.5 there, you know, because it, it, it does it does have a bit of a feel of the movie that I, I don't need to see this again here for a few years. Like, I think I'm good right now. You know, twist movies kind of have that impact on me. That's a personal thing. It when when you're leaning on a little bit of a mid movie twist, I don't know that I'll necessarily always have to rewatch it yearly. So a three and a two point five will go with a a five point five. I would agree with you on the one front that because of the twist and now knowing the twist, it doesn't have the same payoff as it does the first viewing. Normally, I feel that usually my second viewing is when I pick up a lot more of the movie. But this one, I'm not sure I really feel like I need to watch it a second time. There was not a lot explored visually that I felt could be gleaned through a second pass through. Like I said, I have some harsher comments on some of the acting performances. So my desire, i maybe not the desire, but my need to put this on again is maybe like a 1.5. And it would have to be something where like I have to put it on as opposed to I'm really kind of seeking to put this on. This is not among like the wilder films that I would show anybody unless we're doing like true deep cuts. Obviously, if you're going to go wilder, you're going to go the apartment or you're going to go. I mean, I, I chose the lost weekend for my discussion group a few months back because I felt you. that was a underrated uh, best picture film right alongside a man for all seasons. That's one of mine that I, I really champion as being a very underrated Uh, Best Picture winner. So it's not going to be high on that list for me, but if it's on, I'm going to have no objection to probably leaving it on. Am I going to really force myself to sit through it necessarily? No, but it's fun enough. It's entertaining enough. I could give it about a three. So I'm at a 4.5. All right. Go for the five and give me the easy math. I'm not going to. Fine. I love this film. I've always loved this film. It's one of these where this is one of the criteria. It's where there's a group of us together and we're not sure what to watch. This is one that I should have on my list that I keep. I keep a list of certain things, movies, what my wife should make for dinner, <laughs> you know, Beginning in meatballs and meatloaf are not a list. That's just no, two it's choices. well beyond that, my friend then it's it's significantly changed from about three weeks ago no no it's much more significant than that anyway and it's not something i'm going to turn off if it's on and if i find it as i'm skimming through i may very well stop and watch it for a while so i'm gonna go with a seven for rewatchability so that's a 5.67 average between the three of us 
For audience score, we had an 87% for Google users and a 93% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 9, which kind of surprised me how receptive the audience was for this film. So to repeat the categories, we had a 4.33 for Legacy, a 6.33 for Impact and Significance, a 7.33 for Novelty, a 6.17 for Classicness, a 5.67 for Rewatchability, and a 9 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of... 38.83. And you want to have a guess as to where that places on our list? Now, mind you, we have 177 movies on the list. About 56. I think it'll be more than that. It's sub 40 here, so uh, maybe how about... You said 177 on the list? Correct. How about, how about 94? So this would be roughly 154 as of right now. Oh, it's way better. Oh. Wow. It would be between Bringing Up Baby and The Water Boy. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, revisit. <laughs> Already? <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's a deep cut, like you said. It's a deep cut movie. It's That's the biggest thing that's working against it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, only two off from Mr. Roberts. Okay, that checks out. And it's still above the Terminator, so you know, we're Whoa, good on God. that one. Don't don't trigger. But me. we've had don't a we've me. had a run here recently with a lot of movies kind of in this what I would say gilded zone. The sub forty. Sure. I know that's 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 a reference from your show, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> your guys Terminator takes drive me up a wall, but you know, one day. We'll get to T two yet. It'll nah, happen. I don't care about T2. I care about Terminator. OG Terminator. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Dana's ready to We're not here to please everyone. And in that light, uh, if you disagree with any of our scoring or uh, feel we did a poor job, you can certainly write to us. Greatest all time movie podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on any of our socials at Gmote Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or I guess what was Twitter, which is now X, and TikTok, as well as our new Letterboxed page that we just started. So that's been up and running for a couple of weeks. You can find us there if you're a Letterboxed user. We'd be glad to have a follow or hear from you there. Remaining questions for this one. I have a couple of like nitpicky plot things. So supposedly knowing how the bomb was set off was proof that Dunbar did the act. I mean, I know I'm only a son of a, an attorney yet, but that doesn't really feel like proof of much of anything. It's Nazi Germany. <laughs> it's guilt. <laughs> In pr- you have to prove your innocence. Okay. <laughs> I mean, come on. So then why did they need that to begin with? The the biggest the biggest thing that he was going to be doing is is you can't prove I did it because you guys searched me. I didn't have a bomb with me. I'm not going to be able to make one out of toilet water and a bar of soap in the bathroom. So tell me how I did it. Well, here they showed you exactly a book of matches and a pack of cigarettes, which every GI, every Brit, every soldier had because. Smoking was like the 
biggest activity next to using the bathroom and having sex. Actually, I would say probably in that time frame was bigger than having sex. Well, yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had to do drag. (sighs) All right. The other one. So we got an established timeline where at minimum they were standing outside until they dropped for eight hours in the cold, during which Dunbar is hiding in the water tower. Now, if you assume that there's at least a couple of hours where they had to ransack all of the barracks and turn everything upside down looking for Dunbar, how the hell didn't he get hypothermia in the middle of winter? I had this one, too. I I don't think maybe let's say he didn't get hypothermia. I don't see how he can sprint out of a, a POW camp. I mean, I think that that those conditions would severely severely impact his health and i think he'd be in like a, a bedridden mode and they just show him tripping a couple of times but i i don't know it's, it's hard to imagine maybe some extreme form of a survival adrenaline but I, I don't know okay how about this okay he was already kept awake to the point of exhaustion until you know the the uh geneva convention inspectors there he sleeps on the bed for a little He's standing on the ladder for the entire time, not to mention the water. I mean, how is he not going to fall asleep or be so exhausted he can't be comprehending what's going on? Add that now to the fact that his legs are in water the entire time. And I don't see how he could have. I mean, no, that's that's a plot hole as far as I'm concerned, a major plot hole. What they should have done is is that the water tower, oh, I don't know, it had a shelf in it that he could sit on or that the water level was low so that he could kind of wrap himself in there without being wet the entire time. We're talking, this is sub-zero weather or near-zero weather. I understand that Germany does not have the same level of cold that we experience in the north or in uh in the united states in the northern half of the united states but still i had one more if, if we could throw one on on top yeah i by all means we've established like the boredom in the camp there's not a whole lot to do within this this pow camp here like no one's on to security. Like no one's suspecting him at all. Like we've just assumed it. Okay. It's Sefton and he's the mole and that's it. Yet shit keeps happening. Is there not one critical thinker in this camp that goes, well, like we've really bullied Sefton into a corner here. Is he still informing on us? Like how about the guy that keeps saying, Hey, you know, for security's sake, I need to know this. And I need to know that. Like, and even in the beginning of the movie, they're kind of like, well, Hey, I mean, security, you were the one that had all the info. Like, is there not one critical thinker in the camp who's going to be like, this guy is kind of, he's cornering me while we're playing horseshoes about how he blew up the train. And then they say they have the proof. Like no one's coming up with this with all the downtime they have. So I don't know that we're noticing that the, the, the wires going up and down with the, the knot and not, I don't know. Yeah. I don't really have any answer for that. <laughs> the only thing I can say is, is look at today. I mean, how many people actually critically think at this point? Was it that much better or worse in 1940s? Well, they're not playing on their phone and doing wordles and doing immaculate grids in the POW camp. They really have nothing to do but figure out who this mole is. That's my thing. It's like, 
if you're bored enough, let's figure out who's who could be the informant. I don't know. But also people are not necessarily observant either. Mm. I mean, there has to be a degree of human nature that you can associate with this. To a degree, you can maybe excuse parts of it up to the point where they actually do express that there is a mole. They don't have anything like pressing to say about it, but as more and more stuff goes against them and it starts grouping up in a larger number, if it had been like one small thing or another, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But now that you have actual lives that have been claimed, I think that's where it starts to give people some suspicion and other things. And so now that they have a scapegoat, that's the easiest way for them to look the other way and not really question it. And I do think there is an element of human nature that disqualifies them from looking much farther. Yeah. All right. We'll skip uh, final thoughts for the week because I was going to talk about The Killer, the David Fincher film, but my co-host didn't see it. Yeah, well. Such is life. But before we go... We want to thank our guest who is now on for his fourth time. He will be back here soon for his fifth time. And anything that you would like to advertise, promote, push, got a new book coming out, you're releasing your new short film. Oh no, just uh, just a lot of lot of long podcasts over at Best Picture Cast. So um, yeah, ch- check us out. We cover every Best Picture winner, and uh, we do a, a couple honorable ones along the way. We're at Best Picture Cast on all social medias. You can just search Best Picture Cast into whatever podcast platform you do. We're uh, getting to the uh, end of a year here. We have a Christmas special coming up too, and a Thanksgiving special. If you're not into the Best Picture winners, uh, I believe for the uh, this is hot news here for our Christmas special. We will be doing the Muppets Christmas Carol, so that will be our our Christmas episode. Uh, my co-hosts picked that. I don't have anything to do with it. They drag me in, and we talk Christmas movies. On that one there, our, our past episodes were Elf, uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and and Home Alone, where we have episodes on too. So this year, it's Muppets Christmas Carol. Thanksgiving, we always do a Stephen King, because he's uh, my favorite author. It's my favorite holiday, so I do that. And this year, we're doing a, a little bit of a deep cut, an apt pupil from 1998. So those are, the, those are the holiday episodes we have coming up. But yeah, check us out. Best Picture cast. Check out our, our recent episodes on All About Eve, French Connection. We have three years of back categories over. We're about we're about sixty, I think we're sixty-two or so best picture winners in. So come find us. In fact, I can confirm that because I have your page up. Ah, oh, there you go. Jeez, fact checking me. I love it. <laughs> and uh speaking of holiday movies, we do have our Christmas special coming up. One of Dana's personal favorites, a nightmare before Christmas. Uh... We've also covered Elf and Home Alone for some of our past Christmas favorites. We did do one year on It's a Wonderful Life and Die Hard in consecutive episodes. So you can check all of those out. But uh, yeah, we've got a few exciting things. We only have, I think, five or six more episodes yet for the rest of the season. And then we will have been around longer than the Trump administration. Or at least the first Trump administration. So with that... That'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. I am not the Zodiac, and if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Next week for our 191st episode, it's Thanksgiving, so we have another revisit on tap with Zodiac from 2007. 
that you can catch the original episode in our first season. Directed by David Fincher, written by James Vanderbilt. Music by David Shire, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo, and Robert Downey Jr. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, X, or Letterboxd at the handle at Gmode Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 